Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to open them with me this morning uh, to the book of Esther. Once again, Esther chapter three. Um, you certainly can use the screen and uh, the uh, passage that, that, will, uh, that will scroll before you as I read it, but uh, I do wanna encourage you, it would be good for you to have a Bible in front of you as we're gonna go back a couple times to, to different verses. I want you to see different things as we open up uh, this chapter. And so I would encourage you, even if you've been relying on the screen, to maybe grab a Bible off your shelf and turn with me uh, to Esther chapter three, this book that we began uh, just a few weeks ago. As you're turning there, I want to bring uh, to your mind uh, a few characters. Darth Vader and his Death Star, Voldemort and his hidden Horcruxes, Sauron and his hunt for the ring of power, and the white witch, and an endless winter. What do all of those characters have in common? They're all villains, good villains. Well, not good villains, they're evil villains, but they're good because they need to be part of our stories. We all love a good villain. And as we return to our account of Esther this morning, we enter what really is the heart of the story and the heart of our plot and the introduction of our villain. For those of you who uh, maybe weren't here or didn't listen the last couple weeks, let me remind you of where we've been. Chapter one introduced us to uh, to an arrogant king who was flaunting his power and his glory and he was wanting control and he hosts this, this beauty pageant of sorts in order to replace his deposed and banished queen. Chapter two introduced us to this young teenage girl, a beautiful girl swept up into this so-called pageant and and yet through that, she ends up on the throne next to the most powerful man in the world. The stage is set and now we come to scene three. We come to the villain. But this is no Hollywood flick, this is no children's storybook, this is real life. This villain is nothing like Darth Vader or Sauron or Voldemort. This villain is like Hitler and the Third Reich. And so I want to read our text this morning, get us back into the story, Esther chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Listen as I read it. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamandatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, 
in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adair. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamandatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you. The people also do to them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the king's governors all over the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adair, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. And the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king. And the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the drama is building. I wish in a sense that I and that all of you listening at this point in scene three of this account, I wish in a sense that we didn't know the end of the story. Of course, I'm glad we do know the end of the story. But at this point, if we didn't know the end of the story, wow, what tension there would be. What does this passage, this chapter, Esther chapter three, what is what does this have to do with us? What do we do with us with this here in Edmonds, Washington in 2020? Well, amidst a lot of explaining and understanding that I want to do 
uh, this morning through this account, I think there are two things. Two things that this passage invites us to be reminded of. Two things that the Lord wants to once again put before his people. So I want to hang our thoughts on these things. First is this. An enduring conflict rages on. An enduring conflict rages on. Now let me explain what I mean by that. Here was the headline of an article that was forwarded to me this week. Christians in China ordered to renounce faith, worship communist government to receive welfare checks. Here's a quote from the article. During a government meeting in the city of Linfen, near the northern province of Sangji, Officials from all villages under the city's jurisdiction were instructed to remove crosses, religious symbols, and images from the homes of Christians who receive welfare payments and replace them with images of Chairman Mao Zedong and President Xi. The policy is also being implemented in other parts of the country. You see, worship Jesus in China and the state will abandon you. And China doesn't even make the top 10 countries in our world where Christians have to look behind their back because of extreme persecution. Places like Afghanistan and Libya and Pakistan and Sudan and Iran and and Syria, all those places are in the top 10. And ironically, all of those places are part of the landmass that is ruled by King Ahasuerus right here in Esther chapter three. You see, plots against God's people, the singling out of Christians, And therefore, the persecution of Christians is not something of the past. It's one of the biggest human rights issues of our day. Last year, 260 million Christians were living in high-risk areas for their faith. 2,983 believers were killed for their faith last year. 9,488 church buildings were attacked. 3,711 believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, and imprisoned for their faith. Brothers and sisters, Church of Jesus Christ, this is happening now. This is happening today. Well, why do I bring this up? What does it have to do with Esther 3? Well, we always need to bring this up. Any opportunity I get to bring up the persecuted church and to set before us the plight of brothers and sisters around the world, I'm going to take. But I don't just bring this up arbitrarily because I think Esther, what we see here in Esther in some of this history is the first fruits, so to speak, of what we have still Today, You see, at its core, at its heart, this in Esther 3 is not simply an attempt at ethnic genocide. This is part of an enduring story that began before the creation of the world that manifested itself in the Garden of Eden and that finds its way to what we have before us today. 
And so chapter three is an opportunity for us to reflect on the enduring conflict, the enduring spiritual conflict. Well, let's talk about what what happened here in Esther three. As we jump back in our story this morning, we're greeted with with this scene shift. If you were here last week, you'll remember that, that Mordecai has foiled an assassination plot uh, against King Ahasuerus. So when we read Esther 3, 1, we hear those first six words. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted, we think, sweet, Here you go, Mordecai, you're about to get yours. Esther has risen to prominence. Now the grateful king is going to give you your due. King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite. And a Jew reads this story and says, whoa, 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 whoa. No promotion? What about Mordecai? No, no party? No, no key to the city? Nothing? Instead, Haman the Agagite? Wait. Haman the Agagite. You don't mean the descendant of Agog, the king of the Amalekites, the ancient enemies of the Jews? Yes. That's exactly who King Ahasuerus Promotes. And if we were to turn in our Bibles, we don't want to take the time to do it, but if we were to turn back to the book of Exodus, we would learn that the Amalekites were the first people group to attack and seek to destroy God's covenant people. Because of this, God had condemned the Amalekites to extinction for their opposition to his people. Years later, King Saul would fail to carry out God's commands, and we find a record of that account in 1 Samuel chapter 15, and and that prompts Yahweh to actually abandon King Saul for his disobedience to do what he asked. And yet here in our passage, in verse one, and then again in verse 10, we are reminded that Haman is connected to the Amalekites. He's connected to this history. Not just that, but do you remember how Mordecai was introduced back in chapter two, verse five? He too is tied to his ancestry. He is a descendant of Kish. Who was Kish? The father of King Saul. You see, the point that the author of Esther is making is that this is an ancient conflict resurrected between those who oppose God's people and those who are God's people. An enduring conflict rages on and the fire is re-sparked, so to speak, by a bow or by the, the lack of a bow. 
Now to bow in that day and age, particularly in a Persian culture, was, it was very common. It was a normal sign of respect. Even Jews bowed as a sign of respect. We, it's, it's like our modern day bow if we were in Japan and if we were part of that culture or if we were uh, meeting the Queen of England, you would bow or give a curtsy or if you were in the military, you would salute out of respect to your commanding officer. And so Mordecai does something here that's, that's curious. Haman's not claiming divine status. It's the king who has told everyone to bow. If he was claiming divine status, that would have been problematic to bow to him as it was to Daniel earlier. So why didn't Mordecai bow? Well, the text doesn't say specifically the report given by those who tried to engage him on and tried, tried to talk him out of it was that It was because he was a Jew. But you see, knowing all this this story, this back history, we, we can guess why he didn't bow. And whether that was an appropriate line to draw in the sand, that will have to remain a mystery. But it does remind us and bring to the forefront this enduring conflict between God's people and those who seek to destroy him. Well, this one lack of bow, it actually happened multiple times, our text leads us to believe. This this lack of bowing has done it. Mordecai told Esther specifically to lay low, and now here he is standing high, refusing to bow in public. And Haman, presumably so caught up in himself, doesn't even notice it at first. The king's servants are the ones who notice And then they go and tell Haman, and when he is told, what does our text say? He is filled with fury. He's not just annoyed. He's not just ticked off. He's fueled by this ancient conflict. He's fueled, no doubt, by the schemes of the evil one. And he's angered to the point of not just taking it out on Mordecai, but as our scriptures say, the people of Mordecai. You see, this is, this is pure evil. This is pure evil, and his plan shows that it is. And I want to skip verse 7 for a moment. We'll, we'll come back to it. But in order for Haman to, to seek revenge on Mordecai for this affront to his pride, he'll need the king. And so notice this progression uh, that he goes through. When he meets with the king, he says, O king, there is a people scattered throughout your land. Of course, this is, this is true. The Jews were, were all over the Persian Empire. Many Israelites had remained in Persia despite the opportunity to return to the promised land. So that's true. And then he goes on, their laws are different from those of others. Well, this is kind of half true. Yes, Israel had unique laws, but many of their laws would have been common to those laws around them, respect for life, respect for property. And then he says this to the king, they do not keep the king's laws. There is no profit in keeping them. Well, these, these are just lies. Haman's tapping into the pride of the king. 
He's implying that the people of God are an affront to his rule when they're really not. The Jews would have been, for the most part, law-abiding, tax-paying citizens, and actually to lose them would have been to lose some of his tax base. And yet it's Groundhog Day, just like with Vashti's refusal, was blown up into a national crisis by Ahasuerus' advisors. So now here, Haman does the same thing, and King Ahasuerus just lets others rule for him. Where are the questions? Where's the pushback against the destruction, a genocide of an entire people? And what does our text say? Haman even even sweetens the deal with this promised donation to the treasury of the king. 10,000 talents of silver. Some commentators actually think that that probably is is hyperbolic because that's an enormous amount of silver. It's something like 330 tons of silver. It would have been a huge chunk of the the national economy, of the empire-wide economy, but it works. King Ahasuerus takes his signet ring, this power of attorney, attorney, this this literal ring of power, and and he slides it off his finger and he says, do what seems good to you. And as I imagine this scene in my mind, I imagine King Ahasuerus' eyes kind of with those spiral things like the king in Aladdin, just, yes, do whatever is good to you. This is an ancient conflict raging on. And a day of destruction is set and Haman will drag out the dread. The Jews are slated to wait 11 months. <laughs> 11 months from the decree to the day of destruction. Can you imagine? 11 months until everyone in the kingdom is invited and encouraged to join all the government officials and all the army of the king, turning on their Jewish neighbors, young and old, women and children, to destroy, kill, and annihilate them. And our passage closes with verse 15. The evil architects, what do they do? They... They sit down for a drink while the city of Susa is in chaos, is in confusion. You mean I got to turn against my neighbor? What in the world is going on? An enduring conflict rages on. Well, this is a crazy turn of events in, in the book of Esther and in the story of Esther. But what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us? Well, let me just say this. Brothers and sisters, we are spoiled in 2020 America. We're spoiled because we don't feel this ancient conflict of us against the world as as much as we maybe ought to. Jesus' words in John 15 seem so distant from our experience. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. They will persecute you. Now, I don't say that to make us feel guilty. You and I didn't do anything to be born in North America. We didn't do anything to be born in this day and age. But now that we are, now what? 
What do we do when we're reminded of this enduring conflict? Of, of this conflict that is at its roots spiritual, a spiritual war between God's people and his enemies. Well, let me just suggest two real practical things. First of all, we're, we're led to pray. And this is not too distant from our thinking. We, we covered this in some measure from a different angle in the spring when we finished the book of 1 Peter and Peter told the church there to not be surprised at the fiery trials that they will endure. But we're reminded here that we need to be people of prayer. First of all, praying prayers of thanksgiving and gratitude for what we have been given. We need to pray for mercy for what might lie ahead. We're we're seeing glimpses of it. We're seeing glimpses of of Christians being targeted. We need to pray God's mercy on the next generation. And we need to be reminded to pray for those who are experiencing it right now, those who are in prison this very second because of their belief in Jesus. We need to pray But secondly, we need to prepare. We need to prepare with the realization that what happened here, though so far from our experience, what is happening in China, what is happening in Nigeria, what is happening in other places in the world might very well come to us one day. And it it might still be generations away, but this is not going to stop until Jesus returns. And part of this preparation is through our prayers, yes. Lord, make us good stewards of our freedoms. But part of this preparation is is girding up the loins, as Peter said in his book this spring. We must, we gotta count the cost as the church and encourage our children to do the same because at some point, It's going to take real courage, real courage to be a Christian. And so as we're reminded once again of this enduring conflict, let's let's pray and let's prepare. But as we turn back to the story, is there any hope for the people of God? Is there any hope for the people of God waiting 11 months for the day of destruction. Well, there is. There's hope for them. There's good news for us. And it's the second thing, the second truth that I want us to see. Not just that an enduring conflict wages, rages on, but that we have an enduring salvation. That's ultimately where our hearts need to be led this morning. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, once wrote this. He said, God is to be trusted when his providences seem to run contrary to his promises. It's a great quote. Let me read it again. God is to be trusted when his providences seem to run contrary to his promises. That sure seems like it's happening here among God's people. 
stuck in Susa, stuck in the Persian Empire. But let's turn our attention back to to verse seven. Look at it with me there. Let me read it again. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor. That is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. What's going on there? Well, what Haman is doing is something common in that day. He's, he's rolling the dice. Now for Haman, they're, they're demonic dice. He is seeking guidance from, from the gods concerning when he ought to put his plan into place. But here's the thing. What's happening as Haman is plotting the destruction of God's people? God's people are preparing to celebrate the Passover. You see, the day before the scribes are summoned to issue the decree that all of God's people will be destroyed, that day is the day before Passover where the Jews will commemorate the salvation and rescue of God from their enemies in Egypt. How about that for timing? Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its decision is from the Lord. As the people of God begin their 11-month anxious wait, they will do so eating bread and drinking wine, remembering and rejoicing in God's goodness and God's enduring salvation. Isn't that great? Their hope, our hope, despite what they're seeing around them, is in God's enduring salvation. And does that mean that God will save as we think he will, as we think he should in every situation? Of course not. There are martyrs right now worshiping at the throne of God that would tell you that they wanted to live. God's movements are mysterious at times, but we as God's people, we will always have this enduring hope. No matter what we're experiencing, an enduring salvation that trumps all plans and all evil schemes, no matter how hopelessly we feel gripped by them, God will save his people. And it's a hope that finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. It all comes back to Jesus. He is the anchor for our souls. And as we think about Esther chapter three, he is the better Israel who will escape the evil schemes of another future king, King Herod, who like Haman will will kill all in order to try to get at that one. And yet Jesus escapes in order that he might voluntarily give his life for his people. Jesus is the better king who rather than being bribed by silver, he will be sold for silver, betrayed by silver that he might give his life for his people. And while the fate of God's people in the days of Esther still come, still to come, we're getting there. Jesus is the better savior than any imperfect instrument that's gonna be used here. Brothers and sisters, as we're reminded of this 
enduring conflict that rages on and we consider what that might mean for us today, we need not fear. We need not despair. But rejoice in the salvation of God's people, both temporarily at times, but forever, eternally, through the salvation of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this part of of this story which reminds us once again of not simply the historical world that Esther and Mordecai lived in as God's people, but the world that we live in as God's people. A world of enduring conflict, a world of, of bubbling hatred, just under the surface and at times bubbling over. Father, may we be as reminded this morning, people of prayer, people who count the cost. And in all of this, may we not forget, may we not lose sight of our Jesus, the one who will never leave us or forsake us. the one whose love can, we can never be separated from, no matter what might come our way. Oh, Father, may we be found in him. May we be hid in him this day and all our days, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.